Good morning, Glenville family. It's good to be with you. Uh, this morning's sermon is the last one in this series on practicing the presence of God. This has been a good series, but I'm excited for the next series. Uh, next, we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mounts beginning next week. So from the second week of September through November, we're going to unpack the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to the core of what a life of discipleship is all about in the, through the words of Jesus. And I'm looking forward to this. And so I hope you join us next week in our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, I want to talk about the reimagined life. The reimagined life. Let me start with a story. Florence, Florence Foster Jenkins, a soprano, she loved to sing, especially the great operatic classics. In fact, when she inherited money in her 50s, one of the things that she wanted to do with that money was fund her musical career. It wasn't long before her popularity skyrocketed as she was holding annual recitals at the Ritz-Carlton in New York through the 1930s and the 1940s. But as one writer puts it, he said this, history agrees with hands held over its ears that she couldn't sing for sour apples. Jenkins' nickname behind her back was the tone-deaf diva or she was also known as the terror of the high seas. The writer adds that if you ever hear one of her old recordings, all that you will hear are squeaks, squawks, and barks. Well, I'm pleased to announce to Blenville family that I have uncovered one of Florence Foster Jenkins' live performances as she sings Mozart's Queen of the Night somewhere around the year 1938. In fact, actually, you're going to see a video clip because her story was turned into a movie in 2016. So listen to Florence Foster Jenkins as she sings this song. Did you hear it? I'm not talking about the missed notes. I'm not talking about the lack of precision. Did you hear the passion? Did you hear the sincerity? Jenkins believed she could sing really well. And that is what is so sad about her story. Jenkins never grasped that she was so bad. When people laughed and hooted as she sang, she took it to be delirious enthusiasm for the great music that was coming out of her mouth. She thought they loved her and her music. In 1944, when she was 76 years old, she did a benefit concert for the armed forces at Carnegie Hall in New York, and thousands, thousands lined the streets to get tickets, and the performance sold out in minutes. The recording of that concert is still the third most requested album from Carnegie Hall, punctuated by a painful rendition of Ave Maria. Now, what's my point in this story? It's this. 
There's an important lesson to be learned from the Christian life from Miss Jenkins. Lee Eklov puts it this way. People will say, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Oh, but it does matter. Belief must match reality or it is laughable. Belief must match reality or it is delusional. I want to just sit on that for a moment. Belief must match reality or it's laughable or delusional. If that is true of an opera singer, it is even more true for a church. What we believe as a church must match what we do as a church or we're laughable. I think, I think John is urging the church to keep pushing to have their beliefs match their actions in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. At this point in John's letter, he's asking the church to examine their relationship to God. And John Stott puts it this way. He says, John wants to rob counterfeit Christians of their false assurance, end quote. These counterfeit Christians, like Mrs. Jenkins, they had passion. They had sincerity. But what they also had was a counterfeit Christian faith. I want you to notice how John addresses the congregation in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. As I read this text, what pattern sticks out to you as John addresses this early church? Here's what it says, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Did you hear the pattern? John addresses several groups of people in these few verses, children, fathers, and young men. Instead of literal children and literal fathers and young men, John is using family terms to help the church see categories of believers. Let's unpack this for just a little bit here. Uh, let's start with children. Tied to this image of children are two realities for disciples of Jesus. Verse 12, he's saying, your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. And then in verse 14, you know the Father. These are words of assurance. These are words that inspire confidence. These are words that encourage. And they were needed at this point in the early church. I want you to go back just a few verses earlier in verses 2 to 9. And I want you to listen to what John said to the church at that point. Catch his tone. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we, are, we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. 
Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Did you hear the tone? John scolds the church. He scolds the church because believers claimed to believe, but their actions showed disbelief. Now, as a loving parent would do when they see their children heading down a path that will lead to destruction, John scolds them. He scolds them to get them to shape up by obeying Scripture's command and to love fellow believers. For those who are parents, what tends to happen after you scold your child for their own good? Oftentimes, not only does that child cry, but sometimes they also pull away. They pull away because the loving, fun, the voice of mom or dad, it became a roaring voice of correction. And so they wonder if everything is okay in the relationship. How does a parent reassure a child who has just been disciplined? Well, they would say something like this, wouldn't they? I love you enough to not let you get away with your poor, poor choices. Or maybe they would say, you're my son, you're my daughter. There is nothing you can do to make me love you less. After a scolding, children need that reassurance oftentimes. Well, John, after scolding the church in verses 2 through 9, in verse 12, he lets the congregation know, yes, you needed to be corrected but there's nothing you could do that would make God love you less. Why? See, John doesn't want the church to forget what God has done for them. He says they are forgiven of their sins in Christ's name, which brings them into a relationship with God the Father. As a child gradually grows towards adult maturity, sometimes they need to be reassured that their relationship with the father is unmoved. It's stable. It's strong. It's secure. See, encouragement goes a long way. Back in January of 1999, a Dear Abby column ran a story by a retired schoolteacher. One day, as a part of her lesson, she asked her elementary students to take out two sheets of paper and list the names of the other students in the room. And so the kids scratched them all down. And then the teacher gave these instructions. Next to each student's name, write something that you really appreciate about them. What is it that you like about your classmate? And so the kids went to work, and next to each name, they wrote what they liked about that student. Well, she collected all those papers, and she took them home that weekend, and she put all the comments together for each student. 
And that next Monday, she handed them out to the students. So students, I would get my sheet of paper if I were in that class, and I would see what all my classmates said about me. This is what was interesting. Before long, every student, as they read that paper, was smiling. In fact, here were some of the comments. Really? One whispered. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. Another student could be heard saying, I didn't know anybody liked me that much. Years later, the teacher went to the funeral of one of her former students who had been killed in Vietnam. Many who had been in that class years earlier were also at the funeral. After the funeral ended, the soldier's parents approached the teacher and said this, we want, you to sh we want to show you something. Mark was carrying this when he was killed on the battlefield, and the father pulled out of his wallet the list of all the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. And the father said this, thank you so much for doing that. The mother said, as you can see, Mark treasured it. Well, there were a group of Mark's classmates who overheard this exchange, and one smiled sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in my top desk drawer at home. Another said, I have mine too. It's, it's in my diary. And another said, I carry mine with me all the time. And at that point, the teacher sat down and she cried. You see, that story shows how much we all need encouragement. And that's what John gave the church. I'd be willing to guess that of the people hearing this sermon, there are many who are thinking, I've blown it. My sin, my failure as a Christian is at such a level that God must have given up on me by now. If that's you, allow me to speak to you as a child of God. As the child of God that you are. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven in Christ's name. And you have a relationship with God the Father. Go to him. Renewal is waiting for you through repentance. Live as the child of God that you are. Children. Children is a reference to every believer in the body of Christ to assure each of us our, of our relationship with God the Father. But then John uses this second term, this second term of believers being fathers. This term is an image of mature believers. There is a characteristics of the mature believer that is repeated throughout this. In fact, catch the verses, verses 13 and verse 14. Both times, John says, you have known him from the beginning. A man by the name of Truman Dollar once said this. There's a lot of wisdom in this. He said, when I turned 30, I wanted to build a large church. At 40, I wanted to learn how to preach. But at 50, I want to know God deeply. That's maturity. In Job chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Is not wisdom found among the aged? The mature in the church 
Uh, Respect is not given to them just because they're in their golden years. The believers that John is referring to are mature because they have known Jesus from the beginning. This isn't a statement about how long a person has been a believer. Uh, I've been in a church for 40 plus years. That's not what this is referring to. This is a statement of the faith that they have practiced for 40 years or more. After practicing the commands of Jesus for over 40 years, you see the character of Christ in them. That's what John is referring to when he's talking about maturity. These are people who speak the words of Jesus into the lives of younger believers. These are people who have a humility and a gentleness that attracts younger disciples to them, that they may learn the way of Jesus. These mature saints live a life of secret sacrifice, never in the spotlight as they serve others in the name of Jesus. Not only that, mature saints have learned how to love well. They love the lost and the broken. They want them to come to know Jesus, so they make room for the lost at the church. They make room for the lost in their homes. These mature believers, they're older believers that love teaching younger believers. The mature have a lifestyle of discipling in the way to be a Christian employee, a way to be a Christian parent, a Christian spouse, a way to be a Christian adult. And they want to teach others how to do that. That is who John's referring to when he says, fathers, mature believers. If Blenville wants to inspire faith in others, a key to making that happen is nurturing deeper relationships between our older saints and our younger saints. Older saints, let me challenge you. Look for ways to be adoptive grandparents to younger families. Younger families who are away from their biological grandparents. Uh, Younger saints, go to lunch with the older saints and ask them questions about raising Christian kids, about growing a flourishing marriage. Ask the older saints about how did you persevere in faith through the most difficult times in your life, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Ask them. Share their stories. Share stories together. Young and old, get together and listen to one one another. Listen to each other's concerns for the church of today and the opportunities you see for the church of today. When you get together, please don't do this. This isn't a time to debate who's right. This is a time to learn from one another because there's great insights from both generations. And here's the biggest thing. As you have these discussions, both young and old, allow your ideas to be refined from another perspective. I'm not saying give them up, but allow your point of view to be influenced by one another. For younger younger believers, remember what we said. One becomes a mature believer by habitually practicing the way of Jesus and loving others for 40 years or more. Now, why do I mention that? It's very simple. You become a mature believer by starting today. You start today. You don't wait until you're in your 50s. You're practicing that for decades and you grow into that maturity. 
Uh, Let's look at this last family term of young men. Notice that the mature believers provide the anchor for the faith in the community of Christ. And the younger believers, they have a zeal to engage their faith in the struggles of the world. In fact, look, did you see who the young believers overcame? Look in verses 13 and 14. They overcame the evil one. Young believers are pictured as warriors in the faith. These young warriors, though under the mentorship of the mature believers, the young are actively engaged in spiritual warfare against the enemy, Satan. The young warriors, they're strong. They're, they, um, God's word lives in them. They have overcome the evil one. Where does this strength, where does this wisdom, where does this power come from in the lives of these young warriors? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, 16 to 17. Listen to what he says. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. In this snapshot of the church, I see a tension that is necessary for a church to be healthy. The church needs the wisdom of the mature to work in harmony with the courage of the young. Let me say that one more time. The church needs the wisdom of the mature to work in harmony with the courage of the young. For the young warriors in Blenville, I am praying for you what Erwin McManus prayed for his son. One summer, his son Aaron went to youth camp and he was just a little guy. So in going to church camp, Erwin figured that his son wouldn't hear any of those ghost stories that cause a kid to be up all night long because ghost stories can really cause a kid to have nightmares. Well, good news is they didn't tell ghost stories, but at church camp, they told stories of demons and Satan. And so little Aaron got home and he was terrified, scared to death to go to bed. Little Aaron said this to his dad, dad, don't turn out the lights, I'm afraid. They told all these stories about demons and what they're doing around us. And so Aaron asked his dad, Daddy, Daddy, would you pray for me that I would be safe? I love Irwin's answer. As a father, Irwin said, I could feel it. I could feel warm blanket Christianity beginning to wrap around me, a life of safety, safety, safety. But I told Aaron, I will not pray that you are safe. I will pray that God makes you dangerous. So dangerous that demons will flee when they enter the room. Aaron said, all right, dad, but pray that I would be really, really dangerous. As the young warriors and wise saints, as you partner together at Blenville, I I pray that we become a dangerous church. We are dangerous because we love Jesus more than the pleasures of this world, that we love each other more than we love our opinions that divide us. I pray that we are a dangerous church. Let me just close with this. 
John wraps up this chapter with verses 15 to 17 of chapter two. And listen to what he says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away. They're temporary. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Here's the question. Is this true of you? Would you rather have Jesus and the life he offers than any other earthly pleasure, than any other earthly possession, any other earthly accomplishment? Do you want Jesus above all else? 